Let me begin by uh, saying thank you to Dr. Greenway for the invitation to be here. Uh, the last time I was scheduled to speak at chapel last spring, no one showed up. And it was an empty auditorium because of Snowmageddon, and, uh, but I'm glad to, to be here. Uh, it is probably true if you search the archives uh, and found this to be true, I may be the longest running uh, PhD student in Southwestern's history. And uh, Dr. McKellar, I do owe you a phone call and I plan to follow up with that uh, rather soon. Uh, I am uh, delighted to be an alumnus here from Southwestern. Uh, I'm excited about what the Lord is doing under Dr. Greenway and his team and uh, many of you new faculty and staff and many of the, of the ones who were here when I was here. What a great joy it is to be before you today and what a great honor it is. I wanna invite you to open up to the book of 1 Kings chapter three. I remember when I first started my master's degree here and the joy and the anticipation, the excitement to be at seminary only to experience after the first day the devastation and the disappointment of the syllabus shock that pervades all first year students. And trying to grapple with the idea of how in the world am I gonna accomplish all of these tasks in the next two and a half to three months and how will we see these completed? And through lots of prayer and uh, lots of patience, uh, the Lord endures and each semester you pick up a little bit more and you do a little bit uh, more work in the process. But many of us came to seminary for the first time because we had a calling placed on our life. We wanted to experience and we wanted to see the hand of God and we wanted to be used by God for his kingdom to reach people with the gospel. And in so doing that is a call to prepare, to, to get ready to go onto the field wherever it is that God places us and wherever it is that he calls us. And as we pursue our studies, what in essence we are asking for is for the Lord to give us wisdom to know how to apply wisdom, to know God's word, to be able to rightly divide it and, and to be able to explain it and, and to be able to lead people according to his word and his precepts and his principles. But wisdom is a thing that doesn't just happen by accident. Wisdom is something that we have to work at and that we continue to work at. And in 1 Kings chapter three, we have an instance of a very young and immature king who has the opportunity to ask the Lord God whatever it is that he wants, and God says, I will grant it. And so if you would, look at in 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 5, where God's word says, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but just a little child. I do not know how to go out come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And it says it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. What a remarkable question that the Lord would give just one particular man, 
And it begs the question for many of us, if God were to to come to us and to say, ask of me anything that you want, what would be the question that we would ask if we knew that he would fulfill it and we knew that he would honor it? For many of us, we perhaps wouldn't have asked for the same thing that Solomon asked. See, Solomon came from from a very storied family, a place of privilege, yet his family was the epitome of great dysfunction in the life of Israel at this time. He really came, in essence, from a broken home, born out of wedlock from David and Bathsheba. He wasn't the son that was appointed by birthplace to succeed David. In fact, he was the fourth in line, and there were a lot of things that must have had to happen in order for Solomon to ascend the throne. You remember David's oldest son, Amon, who was the heir apparent, but had physical relationships with a half-sister, and then he was killed by his other brother, Absalom. And so one brother commits a sin, and then Absalom, the other brother, comes and takes that brother's life. Absalom, in his older age, becomes irritated with David that David hasn't died, and so Absalom raises up his own army to overthrow his father from the throne. Well, Absalom loses that, and then the third son, Adonijah, tried to claim the throne by marrying one of David's concubines, and he was not successful either. What a a family to come from. What a dysfunctional place to come from. And the only reason that I mention that to you this morning is because I spend most of my time as a pastor reminding people in ministry that it is not their past or their family lineage that defines what it is they are going to do and can do for the kingdom of God. Wherever it is that God has placed you, your family is not the issue into you being useful for the kingdom and the things of the kingdom. But I want you to notice what Solomon does ask for in the midst of that, despite overcoming uh, quite insurmountable odds. If we look carefully at verse nine, we see the language that Solomon specifically asks in the ESV. He says, give therefore an understanding mind so that I can govern your people, a great people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern these people. In other words, what Solomon does in that moment is he asks the Lord to give him wisdom, to learn how to apply in the gray areas, in the in-betweens of life, to, to be able to perceive things as God perceives them, to know what it is that God would want him to do, even if his word has not specifically spoken to those things, yet at the same time, Solomon understands that the word is sufficient for all things. And so Solomon says, Lord, would you give me wisdom and help me discern so that I would be a just king and a just ruler and I would apply the right amount of wisdom to the right situation. As one of my favorite authors says, he says, wisdom is simply knowing how to navigate the realities of life when the rules of life don't apply. As a pastor, I found this to be ever more true back when COVID-19 came in. And we scoffed in many ways at many of the the experts that were guiding churches to, to navigate through pandemics when the reality was not one of them was alive when the last pandemic came. 
And in many ways, many of us were seeking to apply wisdom to a very difficult scenario and what would later become quite a contentious issue with inside our culture, but seeking to apply wisdom to the areas in which we don't fully know or understand uh, to perceive things the way the Lord would have us to perceive them and to apply them to the specific context in which God had called us to as a people. Solomon just simply says, Lord, would you give me this wisdom so that I can govern and discern between what is good and what is evil? But I want you to notice in the text, for what reason does he ask this? Primarily because he wants to honor the Lord, but I want you to notice in the text in verse nine how he speaks about God's people. And he calls them great. And he speaks about them with affirmation and encouragement. He understands that the people that God has put into his area and his life that he rules and reigns over as the king, as the intermediary, if you will, between God and them, they were God's people and not his. And so he speaks about them with great affection, and you can see this affection come out to play as he repeats this over and over. These are your people. God, help me lead them justly and care for them as a wise shepherd like my father David did. Can I tell you, students and faculty and staff, that we need more pastors and preachers and ministers of the gospel that speak with affection towards the church and their people and not critique and condemnation. We live in a, a world and in a day and age which everyone has become an expert in everything and everyone knows everything. And everyone knows what's wrong with all of the churches and we're building platforms and platforms of criticism towards the church rather than being advocates of the church and building people up and coming alongside where they're at. And whenever you find yourself in the future ministry, you become frustrated with the people of God and the people that God has put around you. Know this, he has called you to that place and those still, even in disobedience, are still his great people. And so we meet them where they're at. We bring them along, we, we push them, we pull them as much as we can gently and, and pastorally and we care for them. And what Solomon does in this moment is he understands, Father in heaven, these are your great people. What Solomon is not trying to do in this moment as a warning to all of us is he's not trying to build platforms. He's not building an image on social media. He's not building followers up on his blog and, and trying to build his TikTok group up or whatever platform it is that he is using. Solomon just simply wants to be in service to the king of all kings. And can I remind all of us in this room today, myself included, it, it ends repeating, maybe perhaps others that are not here, we are not called to be kings over our people, but we are called to be servants over them, to love them, to be willing to wash their feet, to go the extra mile, because these, God, are your great people. And when Solomon asked for this wisdom, it's not just in the context of caring and nurturing, though that is certainly a part of it, and he displays this wisdom throughout the book of Kings and elsewhere. But it's also a notion that he would be a king that rules and, and he leads with a sense of justice and a sense of purpose and a sense of principle and commitment and, and he has vision in his life for the people to be a just ruler over them. I think Jude 
3.3 echoes this, that we as a people in applying wisdom, that we would be able to contend for the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints, that we are here as, as students and faculty and staff of this great institution so that we would be able to learn and know justice and to be able to pursue mercy and to be able to contend for the faith in our minds but also in our hearts to a watching world in the culture that desperately needs to hear about the good news of Jesus, that we would contend and be just and pursue that justice, but Solomon also, in verse seven, I want you to see what he thinks about himself as he asks for the wisdom for God to apply to his life. Notice the reference that he says there, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, but I am but just a little child. He recognizes in this moment that he desperately needs the Lord. He knows he's underqualified. He knows he doesn't have the wisdom yet that God is gonna grant him and he needs the Lord to make him wise because he understood in his own eyes that he is but a little child that needs help from a good, loving God. Can I tell you this this morning that anytime we approach the Lord in a spirit of, of humility, in a, in a posture, in a place of, of humility before him, recognizing who we are and, and who he is, that he never turns his back on those who ask him for help. Not one time. He never turns away. And if you think you, are, you know something, because you've read some books, or you are a first year or a second year, or are degreed and credentialed, part of the juxtaposition and the paradox of life is the more that we know, the more we realize there are other layers beneath the things that we didn't know, and for every amount of information and wisdom we garner, we realize there is a whole nother level and things yet to be discovered, and behold, the wondrous mysteries of the Godhead. And so we dig deeper in his word. We go further than we've been before. Solomon knew who he was positionally and in relationship to God, and so he recognizes that as he prays this prayer of humility, but he also, in verse eight, I want you to see that Solomon understood that there was something greater at stake in the kingdom. Not that God was at stake in any way and could be undermined, but he wanted to be faithful primarily to the purposes of God that God had for his life that he had designed. In verse eight, he says this, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, who are a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Can I tell you this? God has called us to a ministry of reconciliation with people. Not programs, not institutions and not buildings, though those things are helpful and at times at us accomplishing the task that he has called us to, but God calls us to people. Not a cause, not a tribe, not a position, but to a people. To meet them where they're at. To understand what God's word says in truth and, and to pray that the Lord would help us nurture their walks with God and to shepherd them and to confront them, to exhort them, to love them. But I also want you to notice, and we'd be remiss if we didn't look at what I think is perhaps one of the most important things that Solomon does in this prayer to God. Something that you and I have to be constantly reminded to do and to recall and to think about. I want you to look back up into verse six and notice that Solomon makes this statement in remembering and recalling. He says, Lord, you, you are great 
and it was your steadfast love that blessed my, my father, and it's because of your greatness and your steadfast love. God, if you did it for my dad, David, would you do it for me now in remembering the good that God had accomplished through his father? And remembering the display of God and the goodness and the kindness and the steadfastness. And it poses a question, I think, that is pertinent to all of us here today in this world and in this day and age. If God was willing to do it for people in the past, is it possible that he would be willing to do it today for his people? Is he still great? Is he still steadfast? If he would do it then, why wouldn't God do it now and demonstrate that greatness and demonstrate that steadfastness, not for our own sake, but for his sake and for his glory? You know, he did it in the time of Caesar Augustus. He did it in the life of that innkeeper that accepted Christ and his family in so that he could be born in a seemingly insignificant town in Bethlehem, in a, in a manger, in a place that no one would want it to be born in. God did it for the people in the past. Why wouldn't he do it for us now? You know, God showed that greatness and that steadfastness of his character and who he was when Jesus and his parents fled to hide him from Caesar. And they evaded him all those years. God did it for them in the past. Why wouldn't he do it for us now as his people? God showed his steadfast love and his greatness when Jesus walked into the, the temple and he taught to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders and they were in awe of what he was saying. God demonstrated his greatness and his steadfastness in that moment. He did it for them. Why wouldn't he do it for us now? When Christ stood in line to be baptized by John the Baptist in a line of sinners, and the heavens opened up and the dove descended, and behold, the Father speaks, behold, the, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and there on display, the people of God see the greatness of God and the steadfast love of God. He did it for them then. Why wouldn't God do that for us now? When Jesus was tempted in the desert, he was exposed to the greatest of all temptations that any man had, had ever experienced, yet he quotes scripture back to him. God shows his greatness in that moment. He demonstrates his steadfastness in Christ in that moment. He did it for him then. Why wouldn't he do that for us now? When Christ was in Capernaum, and that little group of, of devoted and, and misfit of friends, they, they raise their paralyzed friend on the roof of that house and they break through the roof of that house and they lower him in so that he would be healed by Jesus and for all the people there to see the greatness of God and the steadfastness of God, God did it for them then. Why wouldn't he do that now for us? When Jesus leaves the following day and he goes to pray and his disciples interrupt him, and he's communing with the Father. God shows his steadfastness and his greatness. He did it then, why wouldn't he do it now? When he goes to Caesarea, the city of Philippi, weary and tired, feeling a degree of, of being burnt out in ministry, just needing a place of reprieve and, and rest, and yet in that moment, God showed himself to be great and steadfast. He did it for them now. Why wouldn't he do it for us today? When he goes up to the Sea of Galilee, he leaves Philippi and 5,000 people happen to follow him. 
They demand to, to listen to him and to be fed, and God miraculously provides. God, God showed himself to be great and steadfast in that moment. He did it for them now. Why wouldn't he do it for us today? What about the transfiguration on Mount Hermon? where the divinity of Christ breaks through the humanity, if you will, in front of James, Peter, and John. And they become overwhelmed at the presence and begin to, to see that he really is who he, who he says he was gonna be, the greatness and the steadfastness of the love on display for them. God did it for them. Why wouldn't he do it for us today? In the trial and crucifixion, the greatest teacher, rabbi to, to ever live, the wisest of all men to ever live, stricken and stripped of his clothing, exposed, naked and ashamed on a cross, where the religious leaders of the day were so devout, they probably wore coat and ties covering their, their wrists and all the way down to their ankles, and yet he was stripped of that, robbed of his dignity, yet in that moment before a watching world, as they watched the, the, the savior of the world be crucified for the sins of the world, God shows his greatness and his steadfastness in that moment. He demonstrated it then. Why would he not do that today? What about the Apostle Paul? One of the greatest accusers and revilers and persecutors of Christians that has ever existed and walked the face of this earth. And God saves Saul on the road to Damascus, demonstrating his greatness, showing his steadfastness. God did it then, why wouldn't he do it today? And on through history, men such as Julius and Octavian and Tiberius and Claudius, Nero and Marcus and Vitellius and Vespian and Titus and Domitian. Nero being particularly one of the worst of all of them in 37 to 68 AD, he would literally, it was read that he would cover the body of, of Christian teenagers with tar and he would light them on fire in the midst of his villa to give light to the parties that he would throw for his fellow Romans. Yet despite those things, and in the midst of those things, God shows his greatness and his steadfastness and he puts them on display. The name of Christ endures today and we talk about Jesus and not Nero. He did it for them then. Why wouldn't he do that for us today? God has always been great and he has always been steadfast on through the ages over and over and over again. Friend, can I tell you today that I can say with certainty that the kingdom of God, despite what others may tell you elsewhere, is not in danger and it is not in, at stake. Is not. That is foolishness on display. Why? Because God has always been great and he has always been steadfast. And he has always been true to his word and his promises and his character. And if he has done that throughout history, why would he not do it today for his people? That we will endure things such as COVID and Delta variants and the variants that are to come. We will with endure withdrawals from Afghanistan and wars and rumors of wars and tribulations. Why? Because God is still great today and steadfast today. And he's done it for us in the past. He will continue to do it for us tomorrow. Why would he not? But the funny thing about Solomon 
as he prayed for wisdom, he didn't fully understand the wisdom applied in his life in every scenario. You see, just before he prays this prayer, he is actually walking in disobedience where he had married uh, an Egyptian princess to form a political alliance so that he wouldn't be attacked by the Egyptians. And after this prayer where God says it pleased him and he would give him to all that, Solomon then begins a process between this point and all the way to 1 Kings chapter 11 where it says he then takes on 300 wives and 700 princesses or concubines. Over 1,000 women. And some would say it would be to satisfy his insatiable appetite for women, but more often than not, what most scholars believe that in this moment, what he was doing was he was forging security and political alliances around him so that he would be trusting in essence in horses and chariots and not the Lord our God. And then eventually that union, those unions, those marriages began to lead Solomon's heart away from the things that he knew were true and that were right. And so here's the thing about Solomon that we gather this morning, and it's essentially this. As Solomon was led astray, he demonstrates to his people this morning that, he, that we, like Solomon, we need something more than just wisdom in our life. It's not enough. That it's not enough to have degrees and credentials. It's not enough to read these authors or the church fathers or these great preachers or these great systematic guys or, or to understand history. It's not enough just to have those facts. The problem with Solomon in this moment when you jump to chapter 11 was not in his head, but rather it, resisted, it resided in his heart. And there was a disconnect between what he knew and, and what he believed and how he acted upon the things that he said that he knew and, and understood. The problem with us is oftentimes not that we don't know what to do, but rather we don't have the will to act upon it. How many times in our, our lives have we known what was right but we don't need it and don't do it? As one of my favorite authors, Sinclair Ferguson, says this, we don't need mere education of our minds but rather we need a resurrection of our dead hearts. And friends, you don't just need it at salvation. You need it every day of your life. I've been a pastor and a minister of the gospel for over 17 years now. Seen lots of different things over the years. Seen people come and go, been at, been at hard places with hard ground that took a lot of tilling and, and, and cultivating before we saw any fruit. Been at easy and, and great places and places in between. And, and the more that, that, that I, I walk with Christ and know him and study his word, the more I realize how much I don't know and how much I need the Lord each and every day to bring resurrection to my heart so that I would trust him and follow him today with what it is that he has put in front of me. Gotta be faithful with those things. And while Solomon shows us that we need something more than wisdom, we have to understand that wisdom is something that is ultimately fulfilled not through a teacher or a king, but rather wisdom is fulfilled, as Isaiah 53 says, through a suffering servant. 
man who was willing to, to wash the feet, a, another descendant of David, another son of David who would eventually come and, and he would surpass Solomon with all of his wisdom and he would be even wiser than Solomon and people from far and wide, they would come to sit and to listen and to learn from him and to gather the wisdom in their heads but then to equally apply it to their hearts and to be moved by what it is that God was teaching and, and Jesus was not trying to attract people like Solomon with glitzy uh, temples and ornate houses and, and fancy music. He was just simply teaching the word of God because the mission of Jesus's life in this moment was not to educate, but rather it was to save. And so he gives his life for that mission. And because Christ died in our place and he restores the wisdom that had been broken from us because of our own sin, and he now gives us the presence of the spirit of God that resides within us to walk, that we therefore can be wiser than even Solomon. That we therefore can, can perceive things in the, in the middle ground of things as, as God sees them, trusting in his sufficient word, but applying it rightly in the situation and in the context. Friends, there are 7.84 billion people in this world. I think when I was here the, the first time, way back in 2004, I think there were only about 7 billion or a little less than that. The world's growing and it's changing rapidly. Of those 7.8 billion people in the world, at least at the bare minimum, 3.4 of them are considered unreached with little or no access to the gospel of Christ. Never heard his name, don't have access to a Bible, can't find the internet, and, and here they are existing, eternally perishing, apart from a saving relationship with Christ and God is calling some of you and he is equipping some of you to go to those hard places to the uttermost parts of the world and to proclaim the wondrous mysteries of Christ to them to show them that wisdom is embodied in a person and his name is Jesus and we as a people must be willing to go to those hard places to shepherd those difficult people, to love them and to meet them where they're at and to see them grow in Christ-likeness for that is the goal. That's why you study. That's why you learn Greek and Hebrew and you study history and systematic and biblical theology and, and you begin to learn about soteriology and eschatology and all the tologies that come along the way as you study here at seminary. You do those things so that you can show thyself approved, a workman that rightly can divide and teach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you speak to us and give us. We're grateful that you change us according to it. Father, we, we wanna be in, in so many ways like Solomon and we ask that you would give us wisdom. Father, would you grant us discernment of, of good and evil, not for our own sake, not for our own platforms and, and even our own ministries, but God, would you do it for your name's sake and for your great people. Father, would we do it in the service of others? Would we love them and meet them? And I pray, Father, that in this room, you would call up some of these men and women to, to do great things for your kingdom and for your namesake, that they would change our world with the message of Christ that he has given us in his word. 
Father, would you fill them with wisdom? Would you give these students and, and faculty not just knowledge of the facts, but you would display their heart for the gospel as they interact with one another on campus, that your spirit would be felt here in this room and at this place in Fort Worth, Texas. So Father, I pray knowing that you are great and that you are steadfast in your love. You've been that way to this institution. You will be today and tomorrow and, and evermore until you return. And so we lean and press into that. We are not fearful of the things in our culture. We do not hide back from them. Father, we march towards them with the news that you have given us, full of your spirit, full of your power. Would you help us now walk in obedience and faithfulness? We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said.